Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, live from the desert, episode 99D, I guess, at this point, we think. <laughs> hey yo, we sorry thought, guys. We thought this might be 100, it's not. Episode 99D, welcome Courtney Nguyen, my dear friend, I'm Ben Rothenberg, for 99Dth time. How you doing? How's the desert life treating you so far? It's the desert, what's to complain about? We get to watch tennis all day, run around, uh, be in the midst of an incredibly chaotic week. Uh, which we'll get to in a little bit, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I don't know. Indian Wells, everybody knows we love it here. It's pretty, it's pretty standard. It's pretty reliable. It hasn't, except for the first time we were here when everyone got like norovirus or something. It wasn't ideal, that but we survived it. We so didn't get it. What do I care? So yeah. Um, so on this week's show, we're going to talk about all the things that have happened in Indian Wells. Notably, obviously, the return of Serena Williams after 14 years. All the hoopla and attention. That that got deservedly, and how it was handled, how it went down, etc., etc., and also other things that happened, other emerging stories, surprises, flops, whatever else happened in the desert, because it's been a tournament besides that, even if it does feel very much like the Serena show. And just so that you guys know, this episode is going up, obviously, on Tuesday, which is when our episodes drop, yo, so keep that in mind, but... Uh, because of how quickly the results can change, we're really going to focus our discussion on everything that happened in the first week. There so you go. we're not going to talk about what happened with Serena and Sloan. Because we, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. When we're recording this, we're not going to talk about any other match that happened Tuesday. And we'll just try to not sound too dumb in retrospect. I mean, we did have... I think I may or may not have picked Ivanovic to reach like the Aussie Open semis or something and had her lose hours into the tournament. And people... A lot of people didn't hear the episode until after. wasn't so great for wasn't, me. Wasn't but great. It but happens. It happens. It definitely happens, and it's kind of the difficulty of doing these mid-slam, mid-two-week tournament yeah. uh, episodes, simply because there's a ton of stuff going on. Things are still changing, but uh, we are recording on Monday night. Um, so yeah, so I guess we should just kick it off. Let's get started. Serena Williams got started here in the desert against Monica Nicolescu. Um, we'll get into Nicolescu later because she is just glorious. Um, but after all the buildup, let's start actually with Serena's presser that happened on the Thursday. Uh, Serena, much anticipation, got her presser scheduled outside of when all the other top players did their press on Wednesday, minus Djokovic, who also did it on Thursday. But she wasn't part of WTA All Access like a normal top seed would be. Let's play you a few choice clips from Serena's presser. Well, the whole point of me coming back was not to necessarily focus on what happened 13 years ago. Um, And it was more or less to focus on how I felt and if it was the right opportunity for me to come back now and for me to uh, be at this tournament. So I think I kind of let that go. Well, it was just a really good opportunity for me. I just felt like it was time. There's nothing, there's not one thing that says I should come back. I should come back in 2015. I didn't even know I'd be playing in this year. Um, But it was more or less just timing. I I just kind of felt it. I just felt like um, everything was a right time for me to just come back and, and try to do the best that I could here again. 
Well, you know, like I wrote about, I, I said um, I was taught when I was young to, um, to, to always forgive and to always, you know, try to look at the bigger picture, so to say. So um, with that being said, um, I think it's been a good opportunity not only for me to, to be here, but also like I was able to raise awareness and for ch charities like EJI and the Equal Justice Initiative and just, you know, pointing out different things that you can be, you can be better, you can overcome things even though they might not be the best of situations. It depends on how you look at it and how you can overcome them. Well, you know, in order to forgive, you have to be able to really let go of everything. And, you know, I kind of let go a long time ago, and I kind of forgave, but I still wasn't at a point where I was uh, ready to come back to, um, to Indian Wells. And I think I was a little nervous as well. I went through something that wasn't the best, op the best thing for me. And, um, you know, so trying to get over those nerves of coming back and how will I feel and what is it going to be like? Will, will I have to experience that? I think when you do forgive and when you do try to let go, and you, let go, you have to let a lot of those emotions go as well. You know, I can't say that I thought I would come back. I, I didn't think I would come back, to be honest. Um, I felt like I, I did what I needed to do. I, I, in, I finished um, my career in terms of being here at this particular tournament. Um, but at the same time, uh, yeah, I actually never thought I would come back. So, Courtney, what did you make of that scene? Because I have never been in a press conference like that. Uh, Stacey Allister was there sitting on the side of the room. <laughs> Any WTA employee within a 100-mile radius was in the room. Obviously, all this press flew in just for Serena, and a lot of them already left by the time we record this. What do you make of that whole teeing off for the event and how Serena handled it? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that it was pr pretty much the, one of the most chaotic um, tennis press conferences I've ever been a part of, simply because it was a jam-packed room, uh, pretty much standing room only. Um, the walls on the walls, like the back wall was all video cameras, obviously. And then one side, one wall, the left wall, had all these dignitaries like Stacey Allister, uh, Steve Simons, tournament director, um, you know, a lot of just, yeah, WTA folk, things like that. And then on the right-hand side, it was all these photographers trying to snap pictures. And so, and then on top of that, you have people who are in that room who aren't, um, for better or worse, it, it can be good, it can be bad, it just depends. Not, um, you know, your typical tennis beat writers. Yeah, not at all. So the rhythm of a press conference, which I think all of us who are the beat writers, it's almost kind of a symphony. Like you kind of know who's going to go when, who's going to, somebody's got to kick it off, et cetera, et cetera. This one was like a political press conference. There were like people shouting questions over each other to try and get their questions in. It usually ended up being, you know, non-tennis specific people, which is totally fine. They're basic questions. Tennis people don't need to ask them. Um, but yeah, it was a little, it was a little weird. It was kind of jarring. There was just a lot of shutters going off, a lot of flashes. Um, so I could imagine that it was a jarring experience for Serena as well um because yeah i've never really seen a press conference or been in a press conference for tennis that was like that but you could tell that serena was prepped for it knew what she was getting into was more made up wearing a lot of makeup and stuff that she doesn't usually do during press conferences and she was on she was on it was one of the best press conference performances i've seen from serena ever if not the and i think the key word there is performance i got the sense that for her that she had her 
her side of it that she was going to get. She knew the question she was going to get. She was going to be asked about her parents, about Venus, about all these different things. And she had her answers planned and didn't want to talk about 2001. That came up early. That was all clear. The one question that I don't think she saw coming, which I'll put in here, was about Sasha, which weirdly, um, in this story, is obviously all about, you know, race and forgiveness and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King and all this other stuff that got brought up. The question about the hitting partner was the one that people were talking about afterwards. People were like, what was that? Yes, well, it, was, it wasn't an easy decision. Um, Sash wanted to, uh, he, uh, act, he said he wanted to be more of a coach. And um, so, yeah, so he decided to do that. But I'm not sure if he did that. Courtney, your thoughts on that yeah you have any I definitely have so many thoughts about the Sasha question but just to, uh, generally about the the press conference I think that the Sasha question was interesting simply because he yeah she said it I mean it's hard to I mean if people want to they can pull up the I think the full press conference video I'm it's pretty on, sure it's, it's online on the, on the tournament B, channel yeah the BNP Paribas open channel on YouTube but when she answers the Sasha question you can see her afterwards stifling laughter stifling a, a chuckle and that was, as I was sitting in the room, that was like, obviously the dead giveaway of like, oh, I'm not entirely convinced that you're giving a 100% truthy feeling answer. And it was similar too in January when I asked her at the Australian Open, hey, Sasha wasn't with you at Hopman Cup. He's home. He's not with you here in Melbourne. What's up? And she said, oh yeah, he had a back, he has a back injury. So he's at home. And then she kind of, and which was fine, and then she kind of kept going and said, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, there's so many different stories about how he got that back injury. But he, she was trying to, like, make this make it this humorous thing, and I kind of didn't buy it then. I kind of don't, obviously don't buy it as much now, because the whole thing is, if Sasha was leaving her because he wanted more of a head coaching role, why is he a hitting partner, quote-unquote, for Victoria Azarenka? That doesn't really make sense. But across the board, I mean, yeah, Serena had her talking points. Aside from that, Serena, I mean, no one could go in there and say Serena botched it. No, not it at all. It was just this sort of very um, professional, bordering on rehearsed performance, which yeah. you understand in the circumstances. Totally. I mean, and it was just that that moment was yeah. a little bit of a, a crack in the armor, I guess. Yes, for sure. But I, I mean, in general with the press conference, I thought it was... I thought it was pretty interesting, not surprising, that she just didn't want to talk about 2001. And obviously there's the big talking point about forgiveness and things like that. And that's been what she's been talking about since she made the statement about coming back um, in that open letter in t on time in on time.com. But yeah, I just found that to be kind of interesting because you have Serena Williams being in, coming back to Indian Wells. That's great. She's talking about forgiveness. That's great. And about how she is forgiving I mean, that seems to be kind of like what she's saying, like she is doing the forgiving and that she's kind of being the bigger person, which I definitely agree with because I, as people know who have listened to this podcast before, I don't think that Serena needed to come back here. No, we both said that. Yeah. I wrote that this week and everyone who can hear, I think episode 98, I want to say whatever the one that says like back to the wells as a title. But my point was that like, so she was talking about forgiveness and all these sorts of things, but she doesn't want to talk about 2001. And I think that one of the big questions that I have is what exactly are you forgiving? We haven't had a statement that says like what exactly the tournament did wrong, right? I mean, we we have all of our stories of, you know, piecing together what happened that day. Um, but Serena has never really come out and said like, this is what 
what, what I mean by forgiveness. This is the thing that I am forgiving. You know, this is why I've come back. And everybody's really trying to get to the heart of like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you coming back? Because you don't have to. Serena Williams is the number one player in the world. She has all the power. She has all of the leverage over this tournament, um, over in a lot of ways, tennis. I mean, she can kind of dictate terms and policy. She has that power to do that. So why come back? It seems to me it helps the tournament more than it helps Serena. She is talking about forgiveness. She's talking about coming back. And when you ask her, but why? Like, what is it that instigated this this return she doesn't have a clean answer no she doesn't and she talks about like oh there's a lot of factors and kind of just leaves it there but she doesn't actually say really drill down on like this is the moment this was the tipping point which i thought was interesting simply because you know that's an obvious question you're gonna get in this press conference i thought she'd be a little bit you know, more uh, prepared for it. But I mean, like I said, I thought it was a great, I mean, she was on, she was good. No, she was. And I guess she gave, she gave the mainstream media what they needed. I was in the back of the room being like, I don't really care about all this. I want to know if you're like, oh, 100% fit. I'm a tennis writer, right? Like, I'm like, are you fit? How are you feeling? How was practice been? Like, you know, like all of these sorts of things, like Sasha splitting with Sasha. Like those are the questions I want to know. So it was kind of a little bit more, um, I don't know, a different... I mean, we're just deeper conference. into this world than... We're, 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 I'm we're, a geek. I'm we're sorry. We're like doing our third podcast on this topic right now. So, <laughs> I mean, we're a little deeper into it now than most people are. Um, I will say the other thing that I thought was interesting on that was the more Togaloo influence, which has been, I think, a pretty undercovered part of Serena's change here is that he said he wanted her to play this tournament for tennis reasons and kept encouraging her to do it. And if you look at what the movement was from Serena, I think you can't underplay that, undersell that, with him now outlasting Sasha and the team, essentially. Her, if there was any sort of, you know, talent ain't big enough for the both of us, she's picked her loyalties and made her bed with Patrick, and that has stood up as her leading influence in this. And I think his role in that is is fairly clear, because he was always for this tournament, just from... A saying, tennis perspective. Yeah, from a tennis perspective. From, like, these are ranking points, these are titles. It's the right time in the calendar. Yeah. yeah. So and all that stuff is, you know, his job to look out for that side of it. And the fact that she took that into consideration is, I think, notable. Um, let's go ahead to Friday night. Serena's scheduled for the first match on Friday night against Monica Nicolescu, <laughs> who we'll get to in a bit. What, and she walks on, there's, you know, people were not knowing what to expect, I guess, but the ovation was, was huge. And um, the only real pity about it was that there was a Black Eyed Peas song playing while she walked <laughs> home because otherwise it would just be a perfect moment. I don't know whose choice that was. The DJ has been pretty solid here. Was it Let's Get It Started? No, it was uh, tonight's, I Got a Feeling Tonight's Good, um, good Night. Uh, it's just hmm. not great. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the number one player in the world, Serena Serena walked on, clearly holding back some tears. Her sister Isha was not holding back tears and just letting them flow. It was it was a very moving scene. No matter how ambivalent we were about her decision, it was an undeniably powerful moment. I was on radio for it, and we were completely silent as she walked out, so that obviously everybody could hear the 
the uh, the ovation. And when I saw her tear up, and when I saw her really struggling with the emotions of, of just being overwhelmed by everything, I was moved. I, I teared up as well. And because you can understand it. I mean, it's not like when I say like she should have never come back, like I think that she shouldn't have, like that I don't want her here. Like it's great that she's here. It's fantastic. She just didn't need to. Right. But now that she's here, like I think that it was an interesting moment to kind of see within Serena how much of a toll this decision has kind of, yeah, like made on her, paid on, you know, like it, it's just taken a lot. And I think it speaks volumes to her saying, you know, that she was nervous and she decided to stay in LA an extra day um, before coming to Indian Wells. Um, she was definitely nervous during the match uh, against Nicolescu. Yeah. Um, after the match, after the win, when she came to press, it was clear that she had been had a pretty emotional time after the match, um, really kind of subdued and a little red in the eyes. Um, so this 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 can't be underestimated. The I do think the amount of courage for her to step back on that court, considering that the last time she was on that court, she was booed off it effectively. Yeah, man, like that's I don't know. When I think about it, it there's a gravity to it that I can't really express, but it was incredibly moving. And just how entrenched she was in her decision not to. It wasn't like this thing happened and she came back in 2002. I mean, she came, was in 2001, and stood by, affirmatively skipped this tournament all those other times. And it was a huge decision for her. And one, like we've mentioned before, that Venus did not make, that her father was not here. Those two were both here the last time. Um, but she stood out there and did it. And she said it was afterwards one of the uh, most greatest, best, moments, greatest, of her career, greatest yeah. moments of her career how she handled it because yeah i mean i think that's that one thing to remember like serena and venus have used yeah i'll play indian wells like the way the rest of us say when pigs fly like this has like they use it they've been using it as a punchline of like serena especially serena especially like that's the last thing i would do like i would you know over my dead body sort of thing and so yeah i mean there's there's this has been a massive turnaround and for here to for her to come here is just an incredible boost to the tournament I mean, there's no way around it. Larry Ellison wants this tournament to be the best tournament in the world, and he couldn't say that if the best woman in the world, especially the, the an American, didn't come and play it. And yeah. uh, he and and Ray Moore and Steve Simons, like the, the the Indian Wells team, pulled out all the stops to get her here. Um, but I think it, in the big scheme of things, it benefits them a lot more than it benefits her. And it's worth noting that they, as Howard Bryan reported and others, uh, How, Howard Bryan for ESPN. They pulled out a lot of stops to get Serena. Did not seem to try very hard for Venus. So and by not seem to try very worth. hard, as Howard Bryant reported in his ESPN.com piece, uh, they did not ask right to, uh, Venus Williams <laughs> to return. So by not try very hard, they didn't try. So which I don't know kind of begs the question. Like again, like what are we forgiving? What was the thing that was done wrong? Like who's what, benefiting? Who's from this? benefiting and... from this? Like why has this big push been made? I think there's a lot of, you know, little signs to show that this is a lot more of a cynical move on all accounts than we maybe want it to be. But the party line is uh, that this is about forgiveness. It's about, you know, you know, uh, a great day for women's tennis and all these sorts of things. And all of those things are also true. So it's a complicated situation. It's been dominating the 
you know, the there is actually a literal water cool, water cooler in the press yeah, room. There is. But uh, it's been dominating the water cooler talk. I think everybody's trying to just get to the bottom of it and really wrap everyone wrap our minds around it because there's a lot of very interesting angles. Speaking of interesting angles and complicated, but in a totally more joyful way, can we talk about Monica Nicoletsky real quick? Let's. I was so excited when the draw came out and Monica Nicoletsky had a chance to play Serena and then she obliterated Krunich in the first round and Monica Nicoletsky made herself a part of history with this and it's Monica Nicoletsky. For those of you who've listened to the podcast, you understand our joy for her and Courtney, you got to talk to her, I think, for one of the first, one of the first times you've talked to her at length? No, here? I've talked to her before. Okay. Yeah. But you did talk to her before this and there's a great Q&A you did. With Sports Illustrated, I don't know if you want to put any yeah, audio of it in here. And we'll put some audio of it in here for you um, getting to know Monica and her, lack of a better word, weirdness. Because it's pretty glorious. Yeah, I mean, when I was young, um, I was with my sister and with my mom all the time traveling. And uh, I just started one day to play like this. And I was winning and I was European champion. And uh, in many ITFs I was winning. I was four in the uh, junior. So... It was working and uh, I don't know, I stayed with it, you know, I did these shots, I don't know why. <laughs> and um, now I'm unique and everybody knows me this way. I play very different, I don't give you a rhythm. So uh, actually it's hard to answer this when it started. I know when it was, I was young, I was playing like this and uh, it was tough for the players. Uh, and I was winning European Championship uh, when I was 16. I was winning also everything. So I started to play like this, and now I'm uh, liking it, like it yeah. more. Like, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Do you um, work when you were younger and you had coaches? Yeah. Did they ever try? And they did try. They did? Yeah, I tried so many times to play more spin, you know. But uh, I came back to this one because I love it. I feel comfortable, you know. I feel relaxed when I I can hit many without. You know, any pressure or something, you know. <laughs> right. So I feel better. It doesn't mean that I'm not working the spin. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm well, trying this. Yeah, way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing this in practice and uh, many situations, you know, when they come and put pressure on, at the net, you know, I'm trying to do this. So uh, I like it. I mean, I'm unique and everybody knows me exactly. like this. So everybody knows my style. I'm not uh, a new, a fresh girl <laughs> on the tour. So yeah, yeah I love it. <laughs> you do. Um, has you ever... have to love it. Oh, of course. Yeah, because you have to run a lot, you know, yeah. with the slice. Yes. Because, okay, you play different, but you have to run a lot because you don't do many winners, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I try to do more with my backhand and uh, try to play different and try to stay there and fight for every ball. Mm -hmm. This I do also fight yes, a lot. You do. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. do. I mean, on the forehand slice that you hit, I mean, is it 100% of the time you're hitting the forehand slice? Or do you occasionally? I feel like occasionally I've seen you hit a top yeah, forehand. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am hitting. Depends yeah. how I feel that day. Okay. And uh, uh, it depends if my slice is a bit high. If it's a bit high, I try to mix it up a bit because I see it's not working today. But usually my, my thing is to put it low all the time and mm -hmm. try to run the opponent and uh, then put a drop shot suddenly from nowhere, you mm -hmm. know, and... Or come at the net from yeah. nowhere. So, uh, but I hit spin. I, if you see players who are attack me or something, I try to play spin. But most of the time, slice. You know, <laughs> most of the time and uh, backhand spin, yes, obviously. Backhand spin, Otherwise, spin. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would be Santoro, and no, Santoro is unique. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I have. I, I played against players. I don't want to give names, which suddenly 
I don't know, they were laughing and they were starting to hit Sly's forehand. They that, couldn't anymore. They were like, that's it, I can't. <laughs> and they started to hit slice or drop shot or I don't know. <laughs> Like they, 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 they get frustrated and yeah, they, so they, they were, just started They started to play out. weird, yeah, you know, like <laughs> slice forehand. I'm like, what's going on? You were yeah. hitting, you know? So, or, uh, I don't know, at one point I was at the net and I would drop shot and then lob over the opponent and then suddenly she hit the ball somewhere else because she couldn't anymore, you know? Uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll see with Serena, hopefully. It's going to be a great match. I have to play my best tennis, otherwise it's not going to be easy. Right, of course, of <laughs> And course. Uh, stay and have fun, you know, because it's not going to be easy. It's center court is night match. A lot of people, so try to relax, and if I relax and I can play my game, and it's going to be, it's going to look good, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm tense and stuff, you know, it's not going to look good. Right. So this is the plan for me. That's a, yeah, good, yeah, that's a very that's a good, good plan, plan huh? you know. Monica played really well. Incredibly well. She played, this was peak Nicolescu. She had so many breakpoint chances. She didn't convert on them, but she had so many. Yeah. And um, she had her chances. She very easily could have won this match, you guys. She very easily could have done it. Would have been the most ridiculous like story in tennis history. <laughs> oh my god, a story comeback. I would love to write, not because like I want Serena to lose, but because it was Monica Nicolescu. It's like she was so excited to play. She, she loves the stage. She loves the stage. She loved the opportunity to conditions were perfect for her. Yeah, too. that definitely is true. And she loved the opportunity to show the world this is me. This is my game. This is what I do. This is how I make a living. Like John McEnroe, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, God knows whoever else, other dignitaries were sitting there. Why was Bill Gates there? Bill Gates watched a Monica Nicolescu match, you guys. John McEnroe had to sit there, front row, and be like the guy who explained tennis to <laughs> Ellison and Bill Gates and had to confront Nicolescu for over two hours. Bless. so great. Bless her. So great. Bless so, her. I'm pretty happy with that. I think it was a really cool match. Like she pointed out, I mean, her other real big stage match she's had, she hasn't drawn a lot of top players in big tournaments, um, but she did play Lina in Beijing and beat her there. So, I mean, the stage is real, and for everything Serena was going through mentally, emotionally, in, and physically, because getting used to desert conditions are not easy, Monica Nicolescu was the most one of the most tormenting foils, because the balls she was giving her were just crazy. They just died these conditions and it was a really X's and O's just period just tennis wise really fun match. yeah no I loved it I was on radio for it I loved trying to articulate to people listening but not viewing what the hell was actually going on and how Monica Nicolescu was producing her shots how she was causing so many problems to Serena it was really fun and it was it was a very fun chess match my favorite moment of the entire actual match was when Serena Williams Basically said, I cannot, and hit a forehand slice. <laughs> and, like, with the same flair as Monica Nicolescu. Like, she, like, tried to, like, do the whole forehand under whip thing to put a massive amount of spin. Oh, that was glorious. That match was great. I loved it. it I would rewatch it in a heartbeat. It in was a so heartbeat. Much, so much fun. So that was the big story. Serena Nicolescu. Uh, Serena played her next match against Serena Diaz. Routined her. Everything seems back to normal, like we thought. Once she got the first match out of the way, it'll be normal Serena tournament mode. I mean, she afterwards in the Nicolescu, sorry, in the Diaz press, she was clearly drained and exhausted. She's not. This took a lot out of her yeah. the comeback, and, it, and it, so it and, remains, and, and it, it remains keeps doing so. Yeah, so I mean, this is a a week where we've said, you know, there could be some weird results coming up later. We don't know, um, but we'll see what happens. And um, but that she's here is really the story, and what happens afterwards.
it's kind of... I mean, if she wins the tournament, it's a nice little exclamation point for the whole thing. But otherwise, it's a... It, her story was the first round. Why don't we go to Marty next? Because she he was the other big story. And he would have been a much bigger story had he not been overshadowed by Serena, which I think he was probably fine with. Yes, I think um, so. Marty Fish making his comeback after 18 months off tour. Struggled with a lot of um, anxiety issues that um, also had heart relations. And I think the two things didn't help each other at all. Um, Marty comes back, plays a pretty solid enough match against a very tight Ryan Harrison, understandably tight, has two match points, loses. What do you make of Marty coming back and I guess what his comeback means? Because he says he's going to play at least a handful more tournaments this year. It's not a one-off like I kind of expected it might have been. At least so far, he's saying it's not. I think it was great to see Marty back. I think that the biggest thing and the best thing about Marty Fish being back is is just how open he's been about his uh, his struggles with uh, anxiety. I think that, you know, mental illness, you know, mental issues uh, among professional athletes is something that is in the shadows that no one talks about. It's like no. we treat these people like they're supposed to be Superman or Superwoman. And, um, but there are those issues. And, you know, like earlier, th- or on this week, I was talking to Tamea Baczynski on um, BNP Open Radio. And she came in and, and did an interview, and I just basically asked her to tell her story. I obviously already knew it, but I wanted the listeners to hear it. And and she was so great about it. And, and she said on air, you know, like, people need to know. People need to know about these problems in the shadows of our sport that no one talks about because for whatever reason. And Baczynski's, to be clear, uh, her issues are different than Marty's. But she is also seeing a sports psychologist. She's had to deal with a lot of a lot of. Family, uh, family issues that um, have stemmed from tennis. And um, that's what I really love about Marty Fish's comeback is that he's talking about it. And it's not easy. I mean, this is a dude locker room. It's very macho like to like have Marty Fish around and talking about panic attacks, about not being able to leave the house for, you know, a few months, um, except when he had to go to the psychiatrist. Or but having, like, bailing out of an airplane that had already left the gate at the airport. Right. I mean, yeah, he's been open about sharing some of the dark, yeah. dark moments. Yeah, and, and I think that that's really great. I mean, it was great to see him back on court. It wasn't the same Marty Fish. You could see the rust um, off of his game. All of that is understandable. It's not a criticism at all. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just nice to have him around, I think, in a lot of ways. And... Um, so, you know, I, I would suspect that the U.S. Open will be his last tournament. Sure, it seems to be setting up that way. If yeah. not, I mean, U.S. Open, this is about at the latest. I mean, you don't know how much, how the comeback rest of it's going to go. Um, it's great that he got to leave on his own terms if this is his uh, farewell tour. It was big to him because he, he, the last match he played um, was a match where he was having issues with the heat and the weather and stuff in Winston-Salem. And so that's not a place anyone wants to end their career with all due respect to the Bartolis of the world who pull out in Cincinnati, <laughs> uh, most people don't. Never forget. Most people don't go that route. So for Marty, it was good, and people were thrilled to have him back. There was a great um, photo he posted with uh, Del Potro. So those are two guys we're happy to see back. Del Potro, we didn't wind up seeing on court because his doubles partner, Marin Chilich, pulled out. Um, which, I mean, that team was never going to get on court in one piece. Who, who thought, who, it's like, they can barely miss the potato head a single player that could actually function on court. Just like, they were like, who's the least likely person to like also... Yeah, so anyway, low percentage team there. But good to see Marty back. Um, 
let's talk about another California resident um, who we maybe should talk about right after Serena because she is playing Serena on Tuesday is Sloan Stevens. Sloan, um, who we talked about earlier in the year about not being super relevant to the tour right now, has had a very, very solid week, somewhat out of nowhere, played a really ugly match against Chanel Skeppers in the first round, and then pulled off solid wins against two capable players who weren't their best, but very capable players in Anjali Kerber and Svetlana Kuznetsova to put herself in the fourth round against Serena. Uh, if Sloan had lost earlier this week, she would have been out of the top 50. So this was an important run for Sloan, and it seems like she's getting back on track and showing some flashes of why she was a player who people had high hopes for. Yeah, I mean, it. you know, we can talk about Kerber and Kuznetsov, and obviously they are not two players who are playing at their best right now, but you have to like the way Sloan Stevens yeah. has played. I mean, if you just watch her uh, through her three matches here, you see the Sloan Stevens that everybody wants to see, which is an aggressive Sloan Stevens, a Sloan Stevens who steps into the court, who doesn't drop back and just rely on her defense and try and, like, get people to make errors, who's hitting the forehand incredibly well. The footwork still can get sloppy still at times. Good. Still not great, but better. But th- more importantly, the attitude. Is she still negative? Yes, at times. But she's trying to get herself out of it. I think against Kuznetsova, maybe like three or four games into it, she let out a really big, like, come on, fist pump thing. I think the whole Saviano thing just works. I mean, the guy was able to get that out of Eugenie Bouchard. Um, He's getting it out of Sloan. I think that so much of that comes from trust. I think that that's a very, very, very important element to Sloan Stevens and, um, you know, her coaching relationships and how she kind of interacts on tour. I think that trust is an important thing for her. I think it's probably something that's difficult to develop for her. So to bring in a coach who's known her for so many years, because Sloane Stevens did train at the Saviano Academy when she was younger, alongside Laura Robson, Monica Puig. I think Eugenie Bouchard actually came in a little bit later. But um, yeah, I mean, it it makes a big difference. So he has a way of of just speaking to, to, to his former charges, and it seems to be working, at least for now. And Um, I mean, it's only three matches, you know, most players play about 80 matches a year. So (laughs) we're talking three matches, but in these three matches, she has played very well. And I think that we would be remiss to acknowledge that. To not acknowledge that. To not acknowledge that. There you go. Um, Sloan, speaking of trust issues, um, and just issues in general, she's had, um, had an interesting press conference after her win over Kuznetsova, setting up the Serena win. Uh, she was asked by a local reporter about her relationship with Serena, and then I asked uh, some things about the response she's gotten from Serena fans on, and just in general, which I don't think we've ever really talked about on the we've show. We've never but, really talked about but, it, because it's not just, and it was interesting how you phrased the question, because it's not just about Sloan versus Serena fans, because I know you get it, I know I get it. If I tweet a Sloan result, or Sloan news, yeah. I get tweets back that are really angry about Sloan, and I'm like, what? And, let's, let's, yeah. let's let Sloan talk about this yeah. for us. Sloan, every time I mention you on Twitter, which I know you think is a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> anyway, anytime we mention you, I have all these Serena fans like, immediately criticizing me. Oh, they hate me. Why do you think that is? I don't know, but they are the first people to get blocked on my Twitter. I am the queen of blocking. The queen, okay? You say one bad thing, block. Like, I don't, block, no. I, 
there's no room for negativity, and I understand that they're diehard fans, and I appreciate that, and I'm sure she does too. But some of the comments and some of the things are so unnecessary, and it just it comes to a point where you're you're on Twitter saying mean things about someone else. Like, what are you actually doing with your life? Like, is this your day job, or how does that work? I'm just like, I don't understand it, but diehard fans are diehard fans, so... Yeah, I mean, some of the things are very crazy and outrageous, but like I said, I've gotten really friendly with the block button, so one bad thing, block, the block, 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 so. Oh, God, it's not even funny. It's too many. Oh, I, I don't know, but I just don't like negativity, so, and I think if you have something negative to say, think it, you don't have to you know, express it to me, at me, or whatever you want to call it, so, but it is what it is, a die, like I said, a diehard fan is a diehard fan. Did you be more protective of yourself on Twitter, because I mean, you obviously, especially early on your Twitter, yeah, I love Twitter, I mean, I think Twitter's definitely changed since when I, like, first started tweeting, and I loved it, and it was fun, it's definitely become a, it's become a source for people to attack other people, and I'm, I'm not really into that. Like, if I was a nobody, I wouldn't attack a celebrity and say, hey, like, you suck or you whatever. Like, that's just not me. So I feel like a lot of that, there's a lot of abuse of that. And I try to stay away from it, only tweet positive things, retweet positive things, and that's all I can do from my end. Do you have any sense of why this happens? It doesn't seem like you get worse than a lot of people. I don't know. I really don't care. I I don't live my life for Twitter. I have a lot of other things going on, so it's okay that people don't like me on Twitter. I will live. So what did you make of of what she said, Courtney? I think that it was fine. I think that she has every right to block and mute. I mean, because, I don't know, I mute people all the time on Twitter. Why? Because Twitter is my happy place, and I have a right to enjoy it on my terms and not be forced to listen to crap that I don't need to hear. And, um... And that's my right. It does. It, it's not. You don't have a right to just yell at somebody in real life. Like no. you don't have that right online either. Twitter has done a remarkable job connecting people who were never supposed to be connected, and for better or for worse. Yeah. I mean, like the two of us, at yeah. some level, met on Twitter, and it's worked out pretty well for the most part. Mm. And it's been okay. And and also, it just gives uh, with celebrities, and even those people who are like Sloan's not a celebrity, she's a celebrity she's for this context. Yeah. She's a famous person you watch on TV and never met. It does make them more vulnerable to things than they would have been in any other era, and that's obviously been tough for Sloan. And we mentioned, yeah, like you said, just the way I phrased the question. Anytime I mention her on Twitter, this immediate backlash, and it is very interesting how Serena fans, in particular, who on some level you would expect to have some affinity for Sloan because she is another. American female African American player, it's been the complete opposite, and they've shown remarkable animosity towards her. And I felt her really, I guess, for the first time, sort of speaking out about it. I'm not sure if she has before, um, in one sort of coherent statement, was good because I do think that what she's gotten, despite the dumb things she said in various print and other media, uh, it's totally undeserved, and no one deserves to have that sort of bile stuff tweeted yeah. at them. And it goes, and it does tie into a lot, your story on Rebecca Marino. Sure. Marino, Canadian player, who uh, basically quit Twitter 
and uh, no longer playing tennis, but, um, you know, do a, not due to, but the cyberbullying and, and types of tweets that she got um, from, you know, betters, from, like, whatever, was a big, big deal. Yeah, it goes into the Marty Fish thing a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Mar- uh, Rebecca Marina was dealing with uh, depression, uh, pretty bad depression, and the nastiness she got unsolicited on Twitter when she's having suicidal thoughts and people, and she loses the match, people tell her to go kill herself. It's not great to have that, and you don't know what people are going into. And obviously... You know, people. I got responses after this. People took this out on me. It's what Sloan said, which I don't understand. But people were saying, "Oh, you know, you're just as bad." Saying all these horrible things, like really not at mentioning her and telling her to eat a toilet or whatever. People. Say. <laughs> I don't know why that was the analogy that came. The example came to my head. I'm not sure anyone's ever told Sloan to eat a toilet, but don't it give was, them ideas. It was the visual that came into my head. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah. So I think that people. Yeah, just, I mean, Sloan, yeah, you can say that she's brought it on herself, but it don't need to deliver it to her doorstep. There's no, no need it, for that. Yeah, and that's the thing, I mean, because I was actually, you know, Kelsey Anderson, who's uh, the wife of Kevin Anderson, has been pretty adamant, pretty vocal about this on Twitter quite a few times. She's jumped in about just the general um, topic of people tweeting at players, whether it's journalists or um, who tag players when they shouldn't be tag tagging players about something negative that they're saying or whether it's fans um at tweeting players and telling them you know to go fuck themselves apparently because they blew two match points and they just cost them 20 bucks or something and kelsey anderson made a really good point to me and she said you know the top players they have agents who manage their accounts yeah. you know so they're not seeing that crap but she's like, but all this stuff, it goes to Kevin's phone. We're eating dinner. And it's like, bloop. And it's like, you know, some hateful tweet from somebody who's mad because he, you know, lost the second set or something. And they had him, you know, they had a bet for him winning in straights or, you know, things like that. And she's like, what is that? Like, you know, yeah. like people don't think about it. And, and it shouldn't be on them to have thicker skin. You can yeah. say, okay, oh, just grow up, get thicker skin. How about just not be awful to people? And it's should, okay. Yeah, it should be fun. It, it works. I mean, if people, what I always say is this too, is like if people, people are entitled to use their Twitter however they want to use it. And if that means that you want to be like tweeting at people at like negative stuff all the time, that is, I guess you're right. And it's my right to mute or block you just like it's Sloan's right to mute or block you. So sometimes like when things get a little bit over overboard with like kind of like the she's like such a juvenile like she doesn't block she's blocking everybody it's like but that's her right to do it i don't understand like people criticizing it as a decision it's funny like at because t- she is like the queen of blocking she really is she goes out of, she she preemptively blocks which yeah exactly which is kind of weird because she does it does seem to be clear that she does search for her name which is not great which is not great not and i don't great. think that players should do that like if because if some if some fan wants to just like rant about a player and they never tag that player in it like that player should not be searching their name and finding that and being yeah. mad about it yeah. it's like everybody is allowed to have their little place on the internet you can be a jerk or like crack jokes or whatever so long just don't tag the player it makes no sense let's talk about some of the other young promising players who come from a place far away from sloan namely australia all the sloan's done nicely in australia for herself uh, that's where all these problems with serena started uh by beating her and being 
disrespectful and whatever else in Brisbane. Being made. Being made. <laughs> yeah. She got made in Australia. Yeah, not dragged, not slayed, just made. Just made. Uh, which is maybe worse. Tenacity uh, Kokonakis, Bernard Tolnik both made the fourth round here in Indian Wells. Nick Kyrgios made the second round, uh, got only his second ever main draw win at an ATP Tour event in the first round, beating Dennis Kudla which is not a career-making win by any stretch, but good for him, and lost in the third set to Grigor, sorry, in the second round, in the third set tiebreak to Grigor Dimitrov, in what was a very messy finish, in which he was up 5-4, and then after, but right as soon as he went up 5-4 on that point, rolled his ankle, didn't wait for the trainer to come out, and it was a production, so... Whichever one of the one of the Aussies you want to talk about, they're all three being grouped together demographically, understandably, but they all have their own funness, I guess, about them. Yeah, I feel like you're being very, like, mean about the Curios loss. I thought it was dopey they didn't wait for the trainer. He waited for the trainer. The trainer got there. Okay, so Nick Curios breaks Grigor Dimitrov to lead 5-4, gets an opportunity to serve out the match. On the break point... He run, hits a running forehand and sprains his ankle, rolls over on it, goes down hard. Grigor Dimitrov misses the return, and so uh, uh, Kyrgios breaks. Kyrgios is clearly hobbled, clearly injured. He sits down at his chair. He calls for the trainer. The trainer takes forever to get to the court. Like four minutes, maybe, yeah. Yeah, but that's like a pretty good amount of time. Finally comes to the court, Kyrgios is like, forget it, like, I'm just going to try and serve it out, because, like, what are you going to do? I mean, at the end of the day, this match is not lasting for no more than another 15 minutes, right? You're, you've, even if he gets broken and and Dimitrov holds, it goes to a tiebreak. No, the benefit of waiting for the trainer to actually treat him. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, but I'm saying that, like, I feel like it can't be, a, we can't overlook the fact that Nick Kyrgios, in his first tournament, back from back injury, in just his second match after the Australian Open where he made the quarterfinals, he has the match on his racket against Grigor Dimitrov. And, I mean, the whole issue of the trainer, I asked Nick uh, specifically in his press conference, you know, do you regret not waiting for the trainer? He said, no, I didn't want to cool down. I didn't want to let it swell up um, and all that sort of stuff. So I just was like, I'm just going to go with it. And I asked him if the trainer had come immediately if he was right there would you have at least gotten the evaluation and figured it out he's like yeah probably but like four minutes waiting he was like forget it let's go like i have the adrenaline i'm gonna try and serve it out i'm four points away from the win like let's let's give it a go and he gambled and he lost and that's fine like you know but i i remain impressed by him i thought no uh, it was just talent undeniable I know, but I just uh, on this, I just disagree okay. with the way that you're characterizing it because you okay. sounded very dismissive of Nick Kyrgios, and I think that actually I think he made a mistake. He made a mistake, but I think that like what he did though, the mistake doesn't overshadow the fact that he had this match. Like he should have beaten Dimitrov. Yeah, no, no, he he totally is capable of beating Dimitrov. I'm right. not disputing that whatsoever. So yeah, but I mean, waiting for the trainer, not waiting for the trainer. I think that's a fifty fifty gamble. I don't actually really now looking back on it think that it's that big of a deal. Okay. But um, but he is out two to four weeks now with damage in his foot, um, so he will skip Miami, and that's obviously going to feed into the beast of the fragile Nick Kyrgios, right? I mean that I mean this is kind of arguably a fluky thing, you know. You roll your ankle, it happens. It's less worrisome, I suppose, than you know a back injury or a shoulder injury or a wrist injury and all these sorts of things. But it does go into it. 
very impressed this week by and have been actually throughout 2015 by Tanasi Kokonakis. I think that you know he beat Juan Monaco today under very interesting circumstances, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, you know to make the first 18 year old since Harrison to make the uh, fourth round here, and um, yeah, just super impressive. I I really like his game. I know other people don't. They find him more of a grinder kind of more like weaponless than a atomic or a curios yeah but i i like his consistency i like the fight there's just something about the kid that i just really like so um i respect the fact that he has done this the hard way playing through qualities all through february qualifying for three straight tournaments um and he's battle tested got that great davis cup win his rise to me has been like the opposite of curios they're mm-hmm. really interesting to pair i mean he's gone and done the hard work at the lower levels, played a lot of challengers last year, played a lot of qualifying already this year, and has been slow and steady moving up, and that's where he plays. Kyrgios is big flashes, yeah. and making two... I mean, Kyrgios has, many, has as many slam quarterfinals as he does tour-level main draw wins at two each, which is just weird. Um, and well, so, You know what's also crazy, though? Like, somebody tweeted this result, and I'm, or this stat, and I'm sorry if I completely... Don't remember who did, okay. but if you tweet us, we'll retweet you. But somebody tweeted the stat that Kyrgios, same number of quarterfinals at a major as Dimitrov. That's true. So those two are pairing up well. Kokonakis is still in the tournament as of when we record this. Um, let's talk about his incident briefly. Um, he was up match point um, at 4-5 with Monaco serving at 4-5 in the third set. 30-40, I believe, and Monaco hits an inside-out forehand, I think, that lands near the line, uh, the line of the near sideline to chair umpire Mohamed Layani. Um, it is not, there's no call, so it stands us in. Um, ball was indeed out. Both Kokonakis and Monaco are out of challenges, which you don't see very often where both players are out of challenges. Um, the call stands... The Hawkeye display on the broadcast showed that the ball was indeed out. Which brings up the question of... So, and then Kokonakis got broken and, and could have very easily lost this match. We went to a Thursday tiebreak. He eventually gutted it out. But he could have lost the match that by all merits he'd already won. Because on match point, down, uh, Monaco hit the ball outside the court and should have lost. So, our podcast is called No Challenges Remaining. <laughs> what should... Should there be a rule or a practice that makes it so that couldn't have happened. Because if he had lost, it would have been a pretty a bad look for tennis. It would be one of those moments that would have kind of broken out and been, you know, a for the wind star on USA Today and maybe like a PTI type thing and like all this debate. Yeah, it does. It would have been over all over stuff. So tennis dodged a bullet there. But what do you make of the situation? Um, I think it's unfortunate. I've always been a fan, not a fan, but I've always been a proponent of unlimited challenges with the idea that the umpire can give you a code violation for abusing it. So I just think that we have the technology if the whole point of the game, of literally the game of tennis, is to hit the ball inside the court. And we have the technology to tell you whether the ball is inside or outside of the court. We should be using that as often as possible to make sure that people are rewarded the way that they deserve to be rewarded. Um, but chances are that's not going to be an option, unlimited challenges with a code violation for Hawkeye abuse. So to me, I think that the Kokonakis situation definitely underscores 
maybe the need for compulsory or automatic, or it doesn't matter if you have challenges or not, review of match points. Match points or set points or something. Yeah, match points or set points. If it's match, we and we see this in football. Any uh, scoring plays? Reviewed, yeah, right? NFL. Well, no, NFL games. The um, I love how I said football and you said scoring plays. Thinking I was saying soccer. No, I knew. You're oh, you're talking about, about NFL, but like, they yeah, anytime anyone scores a touchdown. Yeah, but even like close calls within the final like two minutes, within right? Two minutes, right. Within two minutes, don't require a challenge flag. And hockey, every goal is reviewed automatically right. too. Exactly. So the umpire or referee can call for a review just to make sure that they're getting it right because in the final two minutes of a game in the NFL, it is massive. Like it matters a lot whether something's a catch or not. So I feel like why not in tennis have the compulsory match point review? I agree with all of your suggestions. The other one I made, which didn't get great reaction on Twitter, which, screw you guys, I thought it was really cool, (laughs) was if someone's out of challenges, they want to risk losing Mm -hmm. a point to make another challenge, which I think would raise the stakes. And Kokonakis, I think, would have done it, but then suddenly, if he loses, it goes from Deuce to Ad Monaco. So, I mean, it's a bit of a... You gotta be pretty sure about it, and it does. I don't know. And if someone went on like a spree of losing points, it'd make for interesting tanking. If people just kept making <laughs> wrong challenges over and over and over again, uh, yeah, I thought that'd be it. There's other ways to do it, but this was a. Uh, they got lucky there, and Muhammad Liana got lucky there that he. Speaking of chair empires, I I don't remember her name, but there's a chair empire I saw for the first time this week who was calling the Kudryasova victory match in the first round. And there was a time when Ala was arguing, and they showed her, and she just could not have possibly cared less about what Ala was saying. And it was glorious. I want that impassivity on the chair. I liked it. No fucks were given. It was kind of the opposite of and, Leoni. And it you was know, cool. And you not know, that Leoni, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not bashing on Leoni, I'm just saying that sort of like, meh. Was Which is something that, like, that, that, that drew us all to Mariana Chichak in her breakout. Uh, uh, per- tournament here three in Indian ago. Wells three years ago Maria Sharapova versus, versus Maria Kirilenko Kirilenko does a little hockey tap and like two and, years ago actually yeah. oh and also like uh, gets into it with Chichak a number of times and Chichak was not having it she was like waving her off she's like do not even with me and I was like who this lady is and uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was amazing and you know what it was interesting because tonight I was watching the Sharapova Azarenka match and both of them were like banging the balls near the lines, and there were a lot of really close calls, and they really deferred to Chichak. It was an impressive display, I thought, of two players who don't always trust the, the umpire to who were like they would ask her for her like you know second opinion. She'd give it, and they're like, "Yeah, all right." Yeah, I mean, much. There, there's there's some good respect there for she, that umpire. We got polled um, by Tom Tebbit, I believe, in London. Uh, Tom Schreiter, who was doing a poll of, like, best chair empire, and I think we both voted for Chichak. And it was a room full of ATP, and so I don't think she won the poll. I think Leonie might have won the poll. But we think Maria Chichak's pretty cool. Lots of cool chair empires out there. So, yay for them. I'm sure I hope Victoria Chiesa is listening to this, because we know how much she loves those people. Speaking of rules and stuff... Can we briefly flash back to Rafael Nadal's all-access hour? Because he had some, he was wearing some shiny shorts, and he had some thoughts. He did have some thoughts. I was sitting next to him, so I saw the shorts up close, and they were very shiny. Yes. Um, no, yeah, he did have some thoughts. He had some thoughts about time violations. He had thoughts about Carlos Bernardes. He had thoughts about ITF. He had thoughts about Davis Cup. He had thoughts all across the board. 
It was very entertaining. I kind of love when Rafa rants. It amuses me to, to no end. Because he has he so said, many opinions. Because he says he's like, I'm not going to get into this. And then he does. It's For like five minutes. It's so reliable. Let's start with the time violation stuff. Here is Rafa on time violations. Uh, no. If I spoke with him yes. after, no. No. No, I didn't spoke with him after, no. And I seriously don't have nothing against Carlos <laughs> Bernardes, no. He's a, he's a good good guy. I think um, like an umpire with me uh, have been not have been not um, fair enough the last couple of times. But that's that's all. I things are easy, no. I I think um, having more he's putting me more pressure than than the rest of umpires. But that's that's all. Things are <laughs> things are easy, you know. And what, what what for me is not right, you know. You see, no players saying bad words, breaking rackets, doing shows on court, and that's less important than five seconds late or six seconds late. Sorry, I I, I cannot accept that. I cannot say that's that's right because at the end, uh, it's true. The rules are the rules. Being but the rules are for everybody, no? And being a little bit slow, I, I know that I am a little bit slower than 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 other, than other players. But especially in Rio de Janeiro, sorry guys, but it was amazing the, the the weather conditions. So I I I finished every single match. My 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 hand was like if if I have been for two hours in the jacuzzi. So I hope so. Oh. Rafa, Rafa a lot of, a lot of uh, people think that the top players get better favorable treatment from umpires, but... Not me. Do you, do you think <laughs> that maybe you get worse treatment from I think so. umpires in general? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Why is that? I think so, and I'm not... Ha- because I am a, a slower guy, and it's true. I, it's my fault, really. I accept that. And But seems like today... It's worst and more important being five seconds late or six seconds late that break a racket. I saw in in Australia a few a few times that somebody with warning break a racket, doing show or saying bad words, and it's okay. Then nothing happens. So for 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 the image of our sport, it's worth it's worst five seconds late or six seconds late that saying bad words, breaking rackets. That's better example for the kids. We don't want to penalize that, and my six seconds, yes? Sorry. Okay, I'm late, but cannot happen the, the, the things that way because I think it's not fair enough. Courtney, we've talked about this before. <laughs> he doesn't think the rule should apply to him, more or less, and he's not happy about it, and I think it's... But I, what do you think also about his contention in here that the real problem in tennis is the bad behavior? I mean, I think that it's an interesting argument. Not that the real problem in tennis is. I don't think that that's his argument. Okay, but it's a bigger problem, I'm guessing. No, I don't think that's his argument either. I think it's an issue of of penalties, of sanction, of of like if you're going to penalize me, Rafael Nadal, for going six minutes or six seconds, maybe six minutes over <laughs> over the twenty five yeah over the twenty five second rule, then it doesn't make sense to me, Rafael Nadal. 
that when I'm sitting at home and Nick Kyrgios is cursing up a storm that he never gets an, aud an audible obscenity. Like, explain to me that. And I think that there's a legitimate argument there. Not that Rafa should not get the time violation, but that there are violations that are happening in tennis that are being let go, that, that no one's enforcing. The audible obscenity one is massive. I think that... You know, Andy Murray has gotten away with it for years. Nick Kyrgios has gotten away from it for years. Lots of Spanish, guys Spanish. yeah, Spanish-speaking players, brutal. Serbians, Croatians, everybody does it. You curse on court, you're, but if the rule says that you're not supposed to, then it's for the umpire to step in. So I don't think that necessarily, like Rafa was arguing that he shouldn't be penalized. He's just saying that, like, I just think it's a bit of a joke that I'm penalized on this and those guys get to say F-bombs into the camera because everybody's, like, entertained by that or whatever. Although I will say that I do think Rafa gets called for a smaller percentage of his time violations than the uh, number of sanction the called audible obscenities that happen. I don't know how you would measure this, but I get the, se I get the sense that Rafa... Gets mm. called for if, considering how much one thousand percent degree disagree. Yeah, one thousand percent. Okay. The, I mean, there are players who curse after every single point. The audio picks it up. Like even when Rafa, you give him the soft warning, he'll speed it up a little bit. I a thousand percent disagree. I think that the code violation audible obscenity is the easiest one to get away with. Everybody gets away with. It's ridiculous. It's always been something that like super annoys me. Not because I'm like obviously like shy about cursing. I think everybody knows. We've done it a few times on this episode. I, I get a lot. I, I like a good F-bomb. But, like, if that's the rule, that's the rule. Okay. And you need to enforce it. And don't tell me that you don't hear Andy Murray saying the things that he says. Or that you don't hear Nick Kyrgios saying the things that he says. That's ridiculous. I do hear those things. I just think that Rafa violates the No, I'm not saying violation. you. I'm saying the... No, I know. I know. But I just think that Rafa breaks the rule to the point of it being not a rule. In terms of whatever the time limit is, I think he breaks it more often than not. Sure, so, and I think that, but I'm still saying that I think that the, the audible obscenity rule is abused far more than the time violation okay. rule. Well, that's uh, to each his, to each his or her own. And we are like, disagreeing, you guys. And We're just getting you ready for number 100. Whenever it's coming. And we have some ideas, we have some thoughts. Things might not be ready by, by now that might be ready in 24 hours. And, we'll it, and see. to be fair, it's not just thoughts. We are trying to deliver you things that Our have big. not been delivered to us yet. Yeah. So we have to wait. So not all within our control. Yeah, we're gonna try to get some third and fourth voices on this on this thing. Um, let's talk about the second part of Rafa uh, before we more Rafa voice uh, his thoughts on Davis Cup. Well, seriously, I prefer to not talk about that because then I am always saying things about ITF, and I said enough things in the in the past about my 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 predictions that gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I say that six, seven years ago, and today, and a few years ago, it's happening. Yeah. So when that happens, I, I am just a player. I I said all the negative things that I said about uh, the the predictions or what the ITF was doing with Davis Cup because it's, a, it's not because I want to critis, criticize, criticize the, yeah. the ITF for criticize. No, it's because the Davis Cup is a historic competition for for our sport and it's important to to save all these important competitions and the way that the way that Davis Cup is, is moving dolly think that they, they, the ITF are are doing is every time the Davis Cup has 
less value because at the end it's like in it's like if in Australian Open this year the top five players are not playing. Next year from the top five are playing one. Next year are playing two. After ten years, it's obvious that the, the competition has less value than than before, and that's what what the, IT, the ITF is is doing with, with Davis Cup, yes, and that's, that's not positive for, for our sport and for the competition. Rafa, do you think it 20? would be a good idea to, to play every two years? Every two years? Mm. <laughs> there is a lot of things to do. The only, the only thing that you cannot do is if, is, sorry, is if you see that the competition is not working enough well, don't do that. Don't do nothing. So that's I'm not the one to say what what you have to do. But if everything is perfect, fine. But at the end, the ITF lies to the fans and to everybody because last year was great. Because at the end of the year, Roger Federer won, Babrinka won, but Novak Djokovic didn't play. I didn't play. A lot of important players, Berdych, I think, didn't play. A lot of important players didn't didn't compete. But sure, is at the end the final is Switzerland against France. That is uh, two important countries for our sport. Everything is fine, and Roger win. Is, everything is a show. Great. They, they are safe for two more years. So, but that's that lies. Is, is that is a lie for everybody. The same what happened in probably 2011 when when we won. But that doesn't change that that, that the thing is, is not working well. So if they want that that way, great. But in my opinion, ITF is losing or lost during a lot of time, a big opportunity to make the things better and to create an interesting competition, better competition for 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 make all the players plays and makes keep having the competition. Thoughts on Rafa? Thoughts on Davis Cup, Courtney? I think he's right. Yeah, we all think he's right. <laughs> Everybody in... T- this is what I don't understand. Everybody in tennis, pretty much, unless you work for the ITF, thinks Rafa's right, thinks Roger's right, thinks Andy's right. Maria like, went off on Maria Fed Cup Maria went today. off on Fed Cup, exactly. Like, everybody agrees with this. The only people who think that, like, there's not a problem with Davis Cup and it's perfect are, like, people watching from home, like, this very small percentage of people. And the ITF. And the ITF. Who seem unwilling to change. I mean, I think that... It's like definitely there's a definitely critical mass, and it seems like it's a course that's only growing with time. Even though over the course of the three four years that I've been traveling with the tour more full time, yeah, it's something that the ITF needs to look into seriously, doing something about because it all, all access. It was right after Davis Cup weekend, so it was a topic. Stan ran off about it. Rafa, Andy, Ro- Roger got kind of annoyed about it. Roger later said he had a headache. It was a weirdly bitchy Roger press conference throughout. Um, not that he can't be, but it was just sort of crankier than usual, I guess. It's probably a better he word had, for well, it. Well, he had flown from New York on Monday morning and got to Indian Wells, or sorry, Wednesday morning, got to Indian Wells, had a hit, and then had to come do press. So yeah. I would understand Roger being it. a little tired. Yeah, he should have probably deferred to Tuesday, uh, Thursday with how he was... Uh, feeling, but yeah, so he was not feeling great about Davis Cup either. Yeah, so it just I think people agree with Rafa on this. I think it's just sort of funny. It was more we're showing this part more just for the the delivery because I think when you get Rafa, a passionate Rafa, is a is a thing to behold. If you want to follow us doing other things, the rest of the time you can. Follow us on Facebook by liking us, uh, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also like us 
uh, sorry, follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever your podcasting platform of choice may be, whatever app, RSS feed or whatever, we're available on there. Uh, you can also send us questions for future episodes. We will do some questions episodes coming up probably after Miami. I'm guessing we'll do a bunch and empty the mailbag. And so if you have any more perennial thoughts that are on issues related to the sport or whatever, let us know. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. We also still have our listener survey, which we'll put a link to in this episode description. And we've tweeted out a bunch of times before. It's on our Facebook page also. So if you have a chance to take that, we love your feedback and to find out more about you guys and what you like, don't like, whatever about the show. Now it's time for us to talk about what we like, don't like, whatever in our own lives. Courtney, you have a rave that's very meta this week, I think. It is meta. So this week I am raving because I got a new recorder, like, you know, not tape recorder, but a digital recorder to record interviews and press conferences and the like. And I love it. And I feel like all <laughs> of the other audio that I've ever taken either, I would usually record interviews either with this old Olympus uh, digital recorder or um, my iPhone or my iTouch or whatever, whatever kind of was in my pocket was what I recorded things with. Totally serviceable, all of those things, perfectly fine, great. But I invested in a Zoom H1. Um, which is a handheld recorder by Zoom, which is a company based out of Japan, I believe. Um, it's kind of pricey. It was a hundred bucks, which normally these things are like around like sixty bucks, sixty to seventy, eighty bucks for a good one. Um, but I love it, and it's so good. And I bought it just before this tournament. And I've been running around like doing interviews and recording audio, and it sounds so good. And I think that like it'll benefit hopefully you guys because. We'll record like just better audio. Like right now, we have it running. We We're don't want show together. Yeah, yeah, we might not run this audio <laughs> off of the Zoom. I'm doing an experiment. I actually we have this is this three devices we are recording this right now. In front of us right yeah. now. Yeah, um, two of them are mine because I'm testing some audio equipment. But um, but yeah, I I really love it. It's great. It's kind of pricey, but it's totally worth it. It just makes everything sound so much richer in your ears, and which doesn't matter when you're just recording an interview that you're going to transcribe to put into print. But for the purposes of podcasts or, you know, whatever, like if you actually are going to use the audio, um, it's really great. And it's really great apparently for concerts and for music recording as well, things like that. So the Zoom H1, it's like 100 bucks off Amazon.com if you're in the market for one. It's worth the extra 30 bucks. It's really, really good. I'm going to talk. I don't have much to rant about. I'm just too busy to be have any opinions on anything this week. But I'm going to talk very briefly about a less impressive piece of technology, which is the Toyota Yaris <laughs> that we rented this week. And it's too early to rent about it because we've only had it for a couple days here. We got midway through the tournament. But it's so tiny. I don't know if anyone has like a cozy coupe, which is like the sort of toy car, big toy that used to like if you're a little kid, you can get in and do sort of Flintstones driving with your feet. This feels not dissimilar. There's, like, no front or back to this car. It's just kind of four wheels and four seats, and that's it. And we're going to drive up the whole state of California with it and... Probably record a podcast in the car. <laughs> pray for us, because this thing is... Uh... It might blow off the, the five freeway, because, like, when yeah. you were actually the... Whatever it is, the 10 or whatever that goes back towards L.A. with all the windmills... Because last year we had like a Nissan Sentra or Corolla. We had a Toyota Corolla had a last Corolla. year. 
and we literally almost got blown off the freeway. Yeah, so good and luck with this. And this is smaller. So good luck with this. It's entirely possible. <laughs> and I don't possible. think our luggage will fit in it. No, it's entirely possible that we won't get to episode 100. <laughs> so if this is it for us in 99D, it's been fun. It's been great. So we'll leave it with that, and we hope you guys enjoyed that, and will be with us for 100. If it doesn't indeed come next, no guarantees. <laughs> Bye, guys. Cliffhanger. Just wanna use your love to